So every week in preparation for the sermon, I typically spend X amount of hours studying different topics and depending on what the series is. And funny uh, that this week I actually learned a lot about dating apps. So I somehow found myself, I think on Monday evening or Tuesday morning, researching a lot of dating apps. And turned, I learned a few things. One, there's a lot of them. So if you look up here, I'm just going to kind of blow through the, what I found to be the popular ones. This one's called OkCupid. There's Tinder. This is a, I never heard about Bumble before. Apparently it's very popular, but Bumble is a thing. eHarmony, that's kind of like, they're like the pioneers, right? Like even before apps and smartphones became a thing. Coffee Meets Bagel is a new popular one. You, look at this. Meet Your Everything Bagel. You see what they did there? <laughs> Pretty, pretty clever, right? And then my favorite one of them all, Christian Mingle. <laughs> Check this out. Love is patient, love is kind, love is here. I imagine the Apostle Paul would love them using his letter to the Corinthian church in this way, right? Gosh, he would be pretty angry, I assume. Anyway, so another thing that I learned, minus for the fact that there's a lot of them, is that in order to distinguish themselves, because there's a lot of them, they need to approach their marketing and their strategies very differently from each other. So they'll talk about that and be pretty open about it on their websites and when you download the app and all the info on the app store about how they're different from the competition. So the way that they differentiate themselves are things like uh, who gets to initiate conversation, right? Is it both sides? Is it one gender or the other? There's the apps that uh, allow a bunch of free features, but also they give you a little bit of bonus if you choose to pay some money. Some of these apps are just directly um, uh, targeting one gender more than the other. Uh, A big thing is their algorithms, how they encourage the matches and the pairing and what information they ask of the, the user in order to pair them properly and they're so convinced that they have the best method. And then other things are how they incorporate location, whether they use your social media account or whether they don't. And the list goes on and on and on. That they're so different from each other. Use our product because it's better and it'll give you more success than the other. Now, while all these apps and, you know, they all have a different niche focus and they have different strategies, I found by just not researching, just looking at the websites pretty simply that they're all actually selling the same thing in the end. And it's not dating. It's not matchmaking. It's happiness. All of these companies and their apps and their websites and dating exist, not for the dating ultimately, but for the happiness. They're meant to grasp and communicate to all of us that we will help you achieve your peak happiness because you'll date, we'll pair you with a partner, and then you'll get married, which will be the happiest thing that you ever do, the happiest moment, the greatest source of joy that you will ever experience in your life. And it's not just me being a pastor and saying, oh, of course, like you're looking deep into this. Let me prove it to you. From eHarmony, the pioneers, right? Their mission statement from their website, it states, eHarmony wants you to live happily ever after. eHarmony exists to empower people with the knowledge and inspiration needed to grow and strengthen their most important relationships for a lifetime of happiness. They're not ultimately selling dating. They're selling happiness. Today we start a new series called A Beautiful Design, 
And by the way, can we give a shout out for Creative Communications Ministry? It's quite a beautiful slide, right? Um, So beautiful design. And we're borrowing this title from a book that uh, Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas uh, wrote. But we're going to kind of change our series in focusing on the way, I mean, it's in the title, the way that God designed us beautifully. So today I'm going to be talking about God's beautiful design for marriage, for the joining together of husband and wife. Next week, we'll talk about God's unique and beautiful design for men. And then the week following that, we are going to have a guest female speaker come in and preach to us about God's beautiful, unique design in womanhood. But for today, we talk about holy matrimony, the bringing together of husband and wife. And like these websites and the apps and all the dating companies are kind of communicating to us, and I think kind of successfully, is that we kind of start to adopt and embody the belief that marriage, the joining together of husband and wife, is intended to make us happy. Again, it's the best decision. You're going to be so happy. Your wedding day will be the best day ever in your whole life. And everything in culture suggests that to us. And I think even internally, we believe that ourselves. We can't wait for our wedding day. We can't wait to be married because we're going to be so, so, so happy when we get there. But if we look at Scripture... If we open God's word and see his design, I don't see anything about the purpose of marriage being human happiness and joy. When we look at God's heart, we find that the main function and purpose of marriage is not human happiness. Rather, marriage was beautifully designed by God to be the unique human relationship that is meant to display the gospel. That is its purpose. It's purpose to mirror the way that Jesus loved his bride, the church. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. Marriage exists ultimately to display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. It's not about our happiness. It's about this. It exists to display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his bride, the church. So today, in the kickoff message, I'm not going to be talking about how we should look forward to our marriages because we're going to be so happy Or that the purpose of this is to make each other happy. Or that for those of us who are already married, that we've already attained peak happiness. But rather we turn to God's word to help us to learn and relearn that whether we're not married yet, we're pursuing it, or whether we're already been married, that it exists to display the beautiful heart of Jesus. And to this we're going to turn to Philippians 2. Now before we read it, Philippians 2, we're going to be reading the first 11 verses. It's not a passage on marriage. It's not a passage on romance. It's not a passage on dating. It's not a passage on being a husband and being a wife. In fact, there are actually very few passages in general on those themes in the Bible, by the way. But the reason why I was convicted to preach out of this passage and not one of the famous marriage-type passages is because we can learn so much as the Apostle Paul calls the church to living a life of humility And he centers our humble living around the example of Jesus. So if marriage's ultimate purpose isn't happiness, but rather displaying Christ-likeness, then why wouldn't we start in the humility of Jesus? How humility is the beautiful standard, the design that we ought to seek for. How humility is the virtue that all of us need in order to have beautiful and purposeful Christ-glorifying marriages. So let's read this together in Philippians 2. Paul writes to the Philippian church, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, 
If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, whoop, double clicked, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we frame our message around the ways we live out God's beautiful design for marriage. And so I'm going to be using this heading, we display the gospel through our marriages by, and all of our points are going to be from this. So point number one, we display the gospel through our marriages by, number one, putting to death our selfishness. We display the gospel through marriage by putting a death to our selfishness. In verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul teaches the Philippian church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And a little later, he teaches us not to look to our own interests. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, and do not look to your own interests. Now, this just seems like Christianity 101. Don't be selfish. Look to other people. And these are the verses and commandments that all of us, like, there's no disagreement, like, yeah, we shouldn't be. We should be kind and and humble and take care of other people before ourselves. But I highlight this because I think, and I hope I'm not a prisoner to the topic or prisoner of the moment. I think I'm thinking objectively in that I feel that this is especially important when when it comes to romance, when it comes to dating, engagement, and marriage, and the pursuit of that. I think... Again, if I'm not a prisoner to the topic, that of all human relationships, coworkers, roommates, friends, best friends, etc., that selfishness is most powerful in this relationship, not because of like, you know, some sort of severity, but because it becomes most hidden and then acceptable, most justified, most seen outwardly, but we're not noticing it and uh, identifying it for what it is. It's covert almost, which makes it most dangerous. I want to show a video, and it's, it's not a serious one. It's a comedy, and it was nine minutes. I pared it down to two. And basically, this guy is just being sarcastic in calling out selfishness in relationships. And his, the title of the video is How to Ruin Your Relationship. So he's giving advice on how to be a really bad person. So it's meant to be funny, but I think this is actually a really uh, astute way of showing that we don't notice our selfishness until somebody calls it out. So let's uh, watch up here. Do you want to stop somewhere and get something to eat? Are you hungry? Are you mad at me? Nope. Use the silent treatment. When you're angry, instead of foolishly discussing what you're upset about, you'll get better results by becoming withdrawn and silent. 
Using the silent treatment also makes it easier for you to deny that you're mad, thus further punishing your partner by treating them like they're crazy because they see your anger that you're pretending isn't there. I think you should work out a bit more. You can come to CrossFit with me every day. We can be one of those power couples once you're a bit fitter. Always try to change your partner. The best way for you to get the partner of your dreams is to try and change your current partner into becoming your dream partner. They should be grateful for you because the more you try to change them, the more they improve as a person. Drive me crazy. Like you make me angry. Like I'm pissed off. Oh, oh my gosh, now that. Always blame your partner when you're upset. The pinnacle of maturity is having the mental acuity to recognize how it's someone else's fault when you're upset. You pointing out to them that they did something wrong to make your body generate emotions that you're feeling probably instills enough shame in them that they'll never do it again. Wait, what? What do you want me to do? Oh, like you don't know. Never tell your partner what you want. Expect them to know what you want. Your partner always knows what you want. The question is, are they going to be a terrible person by acting like they don't? While they cite fictional excuses like, I can't read your mind and I'm not telepathic. Alright, so it goes on and on, but you get the point. We laugh, one, I mean, I don't know if you know JP and his videos, which are all very sarcastic and like this, in which he calls out things in culture and human and relationships and stuff, but... We laugh because he's funny and being sarcastic, but also because we kind of, that was us at some point, right? We, the whole thing of expecting your partner to know what you want, but, you know, believing that they're lying because they're a terrible person is something that we've all experienced before. Blaming our anger on the other person because they made us that way is something we've, I'm sure we've experienced before. And it's, I show the video because I think he brings up really good examples in which our selfishness is so justified. We laugh and it's like, oh my gosh, that is immature and that is silly. But when we're in that position, do we ever laugh at us? No, we are angry. We are justified and that person should know what made us upset. Right? We have all experienced and been, that, been in that position before. And this is what I mean about, I think, romantic relationship and selfishness that gets embedded into that is a little bit more covert and hidden. It's not as explicit. I mean, action-wise, it's super explicit, but somehow we've begun to believe that like it's okay, or you're fully justified in the rage that you're experiencing. And this isn't a surprise to me. Think about, uh, just as an example, think about the wedding industry, right? Where the whole industry thrives off of you being selfish, right? Every website, every person who works in the industry, their job and their, even their advertisement is how can we make this all about you? Every little detail, pinpoint precision must be about you. And if they don't do that, they won't get hired by you. It's all about you. And so we end up fighting and there's so much there's so much turmoil in the process of your wedding because you fight with your parents, you fight with your fiance, you fight with the, the venue if they didn't put something out of order and it's all because of my way being threatened. So when the whole culture and everyone around you is saying that it really is about you, then of course we feel that it's about us. And so it gets further hidden. 
We allow selfishness to creep into our relationships when we have these expectations and we hold them up to our, our, our partner and we say, you're not meeting these and therefore I am upset. And essentially, I think the underlying message is what everyone has told us from the beginning. Your job is to make me happy and you're not doing a good one. When we don't pay attention to putting to death our vain conceit, our selfish ambitions, our self-serving attitudes, like the Apostle Paul warns us, what happens is that romance and the beauty of marriage and the pursuit of marriage gets twisted and starts becoming worldly in that we start acting again like the purpose of it is your happiness. But that's not the purpose, right? Marriage ought to be our pursuit and fulfillment of Christ-like humility manifest and on display by our character and action. It's on display for Jesus to receive glory. And we never look more like Jesus than when we are humble and putting others' needs above our own. When we put to death selfish ambition and vain conceit and self-serving attitudes in marriage, we show more of who our Lord Jesus Christ really is. We show show pieces of this gospel message of the one who was perfectly humble, perfectly selfless in his love. So point one, we display the gospel through our marriages by putting to death our selfishness. And two, we display the gospel through our marriages by valuing others above ourselves. The way to put Christ-like humility into action is simply to value others above ourselves. As Paul writes this, though, I don't want us to read it from the negative uh, point of view or perspective in that valuing others above yourself means, like, don't care for yourself, like, think lowly, have low self-esteem, consider yourself worthless compared to everybody else. He's not coming from the negative angle, but rather the positive one, saying it could be translated as, let the needs and interests of others be above your own, give other people the priority Honor and respect their needs. Strengthen and encourage their desires. Put them above yourself. When it comes to um, both the success and the failure of putting our needs above ourselves, Unji and I have definitely experienced um, both sides of that. Uh, And and we, uh, I like to say that we haven't completely experienced all the stereotypical you know, things in marriage that everyone talks about. But one thing in a story that I'd like to share that was so stereotypical that we, we did was we got into a big fight on our honeymoon. So after we got married, we went away, got on a plane, and we ended up in Santorini, Greece, on the Greek islands, one of the most beautiful places in the world. You should all go there on your honeymoons. It was beautiful. Like, there is no better place on this planet and one of the afternoons, we were planning on what to do with our time, right? Some of the, you know, some of the trip, the week there on the Greek islands, we had our itinerary planned out. But this was one afternoon where we had like flex, like time, where we were like, okay, what are we going to do? And she wanted to go to this local brewery that was in the middle of the island. And I, this is how stupid the argument was. I don't even remember what I wanted to do. Anyway, so she wanted to do this, and I apparently wanted to do that. And we got into a big argument. And we fought and we were like all angry and like bitter at each other. And, and the embarrassing part is, you might be thinking like, oh, like, you, see, you know, common arguments on vacation or honeymoons are like, you know, really expensive, right? Like, oh, I want to go on this $300 excursion. Like, oh, but I would rather use that $300 on this really fancy restaurant. And people fight about it and like how you use a whole day. But this was actually only like 30 minutes of time. 
and zero dollars. The brewery didn't cost anything. It was just you go and you walk around. If you buy beer, then you pay. But it was so insignificant. And then we ended, we're in paradise. If you walk outside, it's like the sunset like you've never seen before. But we were inside sulking in our dingy hotel room, like, hmm, like all bitter over 30 minutes and zero dollars. And I share this. I mean, it's embarrassing of how childish we were. But I share this to say that even the dumbest of things, even the dumbest of things can become big arguments because the human heart can make selfish demands a big deal. It doesn't matter the significance or insignificance. When the human heart holds fastly onto their way and onto selfish demands and it latches onto it, it can turn anything into a big deal. We were in paradise and we wasted time in our dingy hotel room. For what? I don't even remember what I wanted. But it was because I was self-serving. I didn't value my wife's needs above my own. I wanted my way. Over the course of the years, we've definitely learned and grown. Uh, grown and, and now I can gladly say that angels in heaven call me blessed for I have the best life in the world. Let me tell you one story of our successes. This past Sunday, we flew down to Atlanta to visit my dad for Friday through Sunday. And Sunday was also the national holiday where Tom Brady punched his eighth ticket to the Super Bowl. You might not know, but just in case you didn't know that. And I had a very serious problem. Our flight was at 7 p.m., but the game was at 3 so I had to decide what I was going to do. Oh, man, like, I, I, am I going to miss the, I can't miss the game. Like, that's obvious. But, so I have these choices, right? Like, I, we need a, if, the, if the flight is at 7, but we check in at 6, and the travel time we board, then how am I going to watch the game? So I had two choices. One, DVR it at home. But there's a problem with that. It says something's going to ruin it on the way, right? Like, so I was thinking what I would do is wear sunglasses, put on noise-canceling headphones, and hold Unji's wrist as she walks me through the airport so that I wouldn't, no one would ruin the game. But I thought, oh, there's too many loopholes, right? We're on a flight to Boston. Someone's going to be wearing a Gronk jersey, and either they're going to be smiling or they're going to be really angry, and it's going to tell me what happened. Or my cell phone, if there never buzzes or rings, everyone knows don't talk to him. If it's going, then we won. So I was like, okay, that, that's not going to work out. So the only thing I could do is ask Unji if we can go to the airport four hours early. It's <laughs> the so only solution. So that's what I did. I asked her, can we go to this uh, airport four hours early? And she did not, you might think she might respond in one of these ways, but she didn't. So she didn't say, what the heck am I going to do for four hours in a terminal? She didn't say, you can just watch it at home. It's not a big deal. She didn't say, what are you going to do for me next time if I do it for you? And the most worst thing she could have said, why is it so important to you? <laughs> oh, yeah, she didn't. Say, that would be a problem, right? So this is what happened. I said, hey, uh, so like uh, the game's at three, and can we go four hours early to the airport? And she looked at me and goes, Sure. And that was it. Conversation was over. Now, some of you think it's so stupid that I would talk about how my wife decided to let me watch a sports game in a marriage sermon. But let me tell you why it's not silly. 
She could care less about sports. If Tom Brady like disappeared from the face of the planet, she wouldn't notice. And everybody knows that the most uncomfortable place, minus a public bathroom, is an airport. And going four hours early, what are you going to do? Nobody likes that situation, but without even blinking or even considering or thinking about the discomforts or how she doesn't care or how she's going to benefit in return, she goes, sure. And then we win. I watched the game in, in the gate, B7, in Atlanta, Georgia. Paul says to value the needs of others above yourselves. He says, let the interests and needs be above your own. Give priority to others and show your Christ-like love in this way. And yes, sports is a silly example, but it's actually not. Because those of you who are married, you know that the strength and health and wellness of a lifelong, lasting, thriving marriage is not in the big and extravagance, right? How many marriages here are going to sustain when you do anniversaries really well and birthdays really well? None. It's when your love and you're placing the priority in your spouse and their needs and their desires are daily and natural and simple and the little things that happen in repetition. So it is a big deal. She did actively strengthen our marriage by letting me watch a stupid football game. I am so convinced, friends, church, that putting others above yourself, whether small or big, will always bear fruit. Always. Whether it's a football game or whether it's a big crisis moment or a big celebration and everything in between, when you stack them up, they always bear fruit when you choose to value someone else's needs above your own. And that's what Jesus did. That's absolutely in the fullness what he did for us, which leads me to the third point. Oops. We display the gospel through our marriages by loving sacrificially like Jesus. So here's the part that we call the Christ hymn. He says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, this, this, this verse right here, 5, because there's a poem that comes underneath, we kind of brush by, but we can't. Ready? In your relationships with one another, this is the great command have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in your relationships, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us to have the same mindset as Jesus. And he goes on to explain what that means. Like, what do you mean to be like Jesus? And he he just beautifully in this poem just writes the breath and the the, the beauty of Jesus' humility. That he humbled himself. That he took on the nature of a servant. He didn't just go from God to, like, king or God to human. He was fully God. He was fully man. But then he took on the, the, the posture of a slave all the way down. And then he dies a criminal's death, even death on a cross. And this act of love, of humility, has no compare. And Paul, he writes it again in one beautiful verse in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the humility that he loves us with. 
This is the mindset that Paul is saying, if you want to have healthy, thriving relationships, and I'm saying today the specifics of your future marriage or your current one, have this mindset that God demonstrates his love and that we will, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no book or podcast or marriage tip or magazine with a marriage article in it or even a licensed counselor or marriage expert or marriage therapist that can give us the answer and the the advice and the call to a healthy marriage like this can. Nothing can compare to it. None of these things, even combined actually, could come close to the foundation of a thriving marriage being rooted in Christ-like sacrificial love. So actually, I conclude that the best marriage advice, which is why I chose this passage, is not marriage advice at all. It's discipleship advice. If you want to be the greatest spouse you can possibly be, it's not about finding all the best marriage tips. It's about how can you become more of a Christ-like disciple. Lisa Chan, she states it really well and succinctly here. Your best shot at having a beautiful marriage is if both of you make it your goal to become like Jesus. Our best shot, whether you're looking towards it or you're in it right now, at having a beautiful marriage is if both of you make it your goal to become like Jesus. And this is the type of marriage where we'll not only have the best shot at a beautiful one, but where it'll definitely be a purposeful one. A one that is following and living and abiding by God's beautiful design. Now, the transformation of character, you know, and becoming more humble is something that takes a lot of time and experience, right? Humility is not something that grows overnight. And so today, I just want to give the, the application simply being give, give, give. Just that one, one word, give. The way that we can grow and, and live out the beautiful design of our future marriages or our current ones is going to be practice giving, giving, and giving. Giving of ourselves puts to death our selfishness and selfish ambitions. Giving of ourselves puts the needs and desires of others above our own. Giving of ourselves values other needs above ourselves. Giving of ourselves embodies sacrificial love. We need to practice giving, giving, and giving. Whether you're single or married right now, we just need to give. And I want to address these two groups separately. For those of us who are currently married... We need to never, ever, ever take our foot off the pedal of giving, and we need to run away from complacency like the plague. Married people, where are you at, actually? I want to actually look at you. May it never, ever be said of us that we got to our wedding day and we hit cruise control. My prayer for every married couple in this room here is that it wouldn't just be our obedience to this word and our calling that leads us to loving sacrificially, but my earnest, earnest prayer for all of you married folks right now is that it would be our greatest passion and joy. So if you're actually sitting next to your spouse, I pray that it would be not just your responsibility, but your passion and your joy to love the person seated next to you so much more than you love yourself. In the way that Jesus let go all of his majesty and his power and his prestige to become a slave in order to better the other. May that be what is said of your marriage from 
now till when you die. It's my prayer for you. That you will forever embody Christ-likeness and that your spouse would be the number one witness to that truth. That they would yes and amen to Jesus' character just gushing out of their wife or their husband. For those of us who are not yet married, you don't have a spouse yet, but like I said, this passage, that's not a marriage passage, right? It's a, it, was, it wasn't written to married people, it was written to church people, it was written to disciples. And so this is the same call for us. It's directed towards disciples of Jesus, to whether it's your friends or family or boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, fiance if you're engaged, your coworkers and bosses, people in your classrooms, it doesn't matter, to practice putting the needs of others above yourself to love sacrificially, to put to death our selfishness, to put the needs and the priority on other people above yourself. And this will not only prepare you to be a better spouse in the future once you get there, but this is just going to make you more of a Christ-like disciple who brings to life the character of our Lord and Savior Jesus. As I said in the beginning of the message, marriage was not created for our joy and our happiness. But the awesome part is that when marriage is fulfilling its purpose of displaying the gospel, it's then that we actually do experience the greatest joy. Our joy and our happiness is a fruit of when Jesus just takes over two individuals and makes them one. And when they live out that reality daily. So may we as his sons and daughters display his glory and beauty to the world through our lives, and through our marriages. Let's just bow in prayer um, just briefly before we close. Again, as, as the Apostle Paul calls us to put to death our selfish ambitions, to value the needs of others above ourselves, to, to have the same mindset and the sacrificial love of Christ Jesus, let's make that our prayer. Let's earnestly want that. And as we pray many times and many Sundays here at Cornerstone, if you want to make it into one sentence, let's pray, Jesus, make me more like you. If you do have a spouse, picture them or add their name to the end of that sentence. Jesus, make me more like you for fill in the blank. And for those of you who don't, you can easily fill in the blank with for my future spouse. And that is definitely a prayer that the Lord hears. So let's simply pray that now. Lord Jesus, I pray that the more that we see your beauty through your word, this treasure and gift that you have given us, that firstly and, and, and most, most importantly, that we will be led to just fall deeper in love with you. Again, this passage wasn't about marriage. It's about the beauty of the humility of Jesus. And I pray that we would read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and see 
that Jesus, who was in fully nature God, humbled himself to the likeness of a servant and even death on a cross because of his obedience to the Father and his love for his children. And would we just be in awe of that? I don't care if we grew up in children's ministry at church since we were a baby or we became a Christian recently. I pray that this message would never grow old. That we would always and always fall deeper in love, be more amazed. And then our response would be wanting to be like that more every time as well. And that's our prayer this morning, God. Not ultimately for our marriage and our future marriages, but for our discipleship. That you would make each son and daughter in this room a bearer of the likeness of Jesus in all of their life. And specific to today, Lord, we pray for humility to be a, I don't even know, like a rampant like, characteristic that just runs throughout this church. And this, this world would just bear the, or receive the blessings of our humility. That our current and future spouses would be the ones that are blessed and loved through our humility. But most importantly, to fulfill your beautiful design, that it would be on display to bring you the glory. Father, I actually do want to pause now to pray for our marriages that we do have here at Cornerstone. Surely there's difficult times and there's joyful times and there's ups and downs. But as I said earlier, God, I earnestly and and boldly, passionately, even in a begging and pleading way, pray, Lord, that you would make it our passion, our joy to love our spouses sacrificially. And for those of us who are not yet married, God, I pray that you would be preparing their hearts for marriage, not with dating tips, not how to present themselves well to a stranger or make a good first impression, but rather as you work in their character, as you sweeten their hearts and their souls, because you start injecting more of yourself into it. So we humbly lay ourselves before you now, asking that your spirit would do that ministry work inside of us and that you would take and receive all the praise for it. We love you, Jesus. We love your character. We love all that you are. And we want to be like you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.